Hello folks and the warmest of welcomes to another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. One man and his cat defending the cause of the innocent, the helpless, the powerless, like a North Walesian Michael Knight. Or rather, just seeking out those cases of note and interest that aren't your Madeleine McCann's or your Jack the Rippers, but rather the forgotten ones, the obscure and the often unbelievable tales that can be found from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, alongside the hairy football who likes to chip in with his little bell every now and again. You guys are the reason that I'm here doing this today. It's as wonderful as it always is having you here joining me, and I hope that as you're listening in, then you and yours are all good and you're all well. So I'm belatedly back with another tale, and this time it comes with a week's delay because I'd rage in toothache last week, which, as I'm sure you'll know if you've had it, it drives you up the bloody wall, doesn't it? You can't get away from it, and it makes it hard to concentrate on anything apart from it, let alone try and talk for more than an hour. I would have sounded like bloody Stallone last week if I'd done it, and that would have been alright if someone called Adrian had been in the featured case, but sadly not. But I'm feeling much better now, I've made myself hell of a tough again and here I am back and ready to start with the thanks. Big thanks first this time around to those who've gotten in touch to give feedback concerning the previous episode here on the show, The Lethal Lodger and The Lost Landlord. If anything, because I recall one comment that somebody left on the Facebook group where they said that they'd learned what alliteration meant from its title. I mean, how great is that, eh? What else can I say? Take what you can from it. English with a true crime enthusiast. A strange tale that one about the lodger was, I thought, it was a completely pointless murder. Well, they all are, aren't they, of course, but that one was so much more so. And the focus of it, someone who deserves to spend counting his very many forthcoming days behind bars considering his actions. Big thanks also to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs this time around going out to John Mark Thompson, Carrie, Renee Lizak and Michelle Gilby, plus Christine Phillips, who's edited her pledge, and Nick Smith, Stacey Maxwell and Yasmin Nixon, who have each opted to become annual show supporters. It's most kind and appreciative of you folks, thank you so much. Now some of you guys will hopefully by now have had some stuff sent to you from me, and I hope that you've all had a chance to catch up with each of, or at the very least some of, the unreleased bonus episodes of the show that you get for being a supporter. Now if you want to join these kind folks in supporting the show, then it's dead easy and dead quick to do. Just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there. Always remembering to add that podcast suffix as well guys, because I have had people get back to me before now saying, I can't find the True Crime Enthusiast on there. So you stick the podcast suffix on it and boom, Robert's your mother's brother. Or the ever-present link right to the show's Patreon is always in the episode show notes. You can quick as a flash be signed up and ready to listen to such unreleased available tales as The Samaritan and the Salvationist, New Year's Evil, The Madness at Mother Max, or the latest tale, Disfigured, with bonus episode number 39 coming before the end of the month it's out, and it'll cost you less than four groats and a ferret's egg to do. It's so cheap, guys. Now, as I've previously mentioned also on the show, tickets for CrimeCon 2021 are still available, though the dates for the event have now moved to the weekend of the 25th and 26th of September 2021. The original June 2021 dates were just that bit close to the proposed date that everything is hoped to be restriction-free, so the organisers have decided to put it back to September. 
So fret not, if you've bought tickets for the June dates, then they are still valid for these new September ones, or full refunds are available if you aren't able to make these dates. For those still interested in getting yourself a weekend ticket for the event, which it does promise to be great, it's packed and containing no end of distinguished guests from the world of true crime, several of your favourite show hosts, plus myself, I'll be there of course, and Denise Welch will be as well, so I believe. Worth the ticket price alone, that. And if you head over to the CrimeCon website, there's a link in the episode show notes for you to do so. And if you use the unique code ENTHUSIAST during your checkout, you can get your tickets at a decent 10% discount off the price. That's pretty good or what, I. It does promise to be a decent weekend full of all sorts. And it'll be great to see some of you guys there to say hi to, perhaps even have a catch-up pint with. I look forward to it. So, for this episode and the next year on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I'm covering a tale that it's long been burning in me to do, and one that finds a bit of a different spin from the norm here on the show. It deals not so much with the events that place those focused upon in the tale in the nick, but with events afterwards, namely a prison break. Not that moody looking bugger with a crazy all over tattoo in the show that started Ace but rapidly went shit. We're very firmly on the shores of the UK with this one, and very much in the real world. We're off back more than 50 years for our tale, to meet two characters, two long-serving prisoners who individually rebelled as much as they possibly could against a system they considered corrupt and unjust, and one that neither of them had any intentions of spending years of their sentences fighting from within their prison confines. The episodes have been created largely with the use of the autobiography of each of these, but I've tried to remain impartial here and I've stuck to the established facts and events rather than side with the personal opinions of each because any books written at the time by serving prisoners are going to tend to be a tad one-sided, aren't they, shall we say. Now I do recommend each book heartily as they've both made for fascinating, educated and insightful reading the way they've been written and if you do read them then I'm sure you'll see why I've opted not to be swayed by hearsay and opinion that you may read in them. I've also opted to title the episode based upon the nicknames each man was bestowed with over the years, and in this first part we'll meet our players, so please join the true crime enthusiast for part one of a tale that I've entitled, Angel Face and the Muscle Man. Born in 1931 in the then slum area of Shoreditch in London's East End, Walter Probin was the second youngest of six children born to working-class parents, having two older brothers and sisters, and a sister younger than himself. Now, childhood was at the time rough as a badger's arse, I'm sure you can imagine, and Walter, Wally as he soon became known, didn't even start school until the age of seven, just before the onset of World War II, and where soon after starting he was evacuated from with his brothers to Kettering in Northamptonshire where he was subsequently taken home from a few weeks later, after a visit from the boy's mother found them living in near squalor. After soon being evacuated once again, this time to Maidenhead in Kent, the boys were eventually brought home for good after constantly absconding from the billets that they were placed in whilst they were evacuated. Now by this time very few schools were open in the London area as it was mid-war, and so largely probing, as we shall refer to him throughout the episode going forth, didn't attend school, 
Instead, he and the other children he grew up with were left to their own devices, to make their own fun, roaming around the bomb ruins, collecting war souvenirs, and spending each night down in the Anderson shelter, where Probin was to experience firsthand on more than one occasion the horror of a nearby shelter receiving a direct hit from a bomb and the carnage that goes with all that. Grim, I'm sure you can imagine. By 1941 then, Probin was just approaching 10 years old, and one of he and his friends' favoured games was playing make-believe soldiers, with plenty of theatres to do so in amongst the bombed-out remains of houses and business premises that were scattered about in the area that they lived. One day, whilst playing in a bombed-out cafe, Probin and some friends came across a tin of peas that they used for some time as a prop in their games, before one day opening and actually eating some of them. Whilst doing so, they were spotted, and as gung-ho as this sounds, were then arrested and taken before a magistrate's court, charged with larceny of a tin of peas. Yeah, straight up. After admitting this, the court found him guilty, and for this offence, the nine-year-old Probin received a period of probation. Now, conditions of this probation were that Probin must attend school, but after being sent to a Catholic school, the only one in the area that was open, as a non-Catholic, the boy struggled here and began truanting, which meant he was breaking his probation and so was sent to an approved school, moving from here to a succession of remand homes. Now already having a Roman spirit in him, he would abscond frequently from these, only to be caught at home and dragged back, and eventually began living rough when he would take his leave of absences from these, stealing food to survive. When he was caught, a cycle of corporal punishment, resentment and absconding again began, Probin himself claims in his book that in some of the approved schools he spent time in, this punishment would be meted out in public, the boy who had absconded being paraded in front of the whole school, who would then be informed that they had all lost privileges due to his action. They'd then be left to attack him in retribution. Other times, the masters there would just initiate their own type of punishment, now, if you've seen the film Scum, then you've got a pretty good idea of what I'm talking about. Now, quite understandably, if you're living with this and the horrors that go with such places, then you're going to abscond if you've got the chance to, aren't you? It's a no-brainer, that, isn't it? But then the cycle continues, it doesn't get any better, and eventually, as youth gets older, they will move on from approved schools to Borstal, and then on to prison. Probing from a young age developed a habit of running away from these institutions, and each time he was brought back, and the authorities tried to make it more difficult for him to abscond, he would just be patient, and put his keen and agile mind to developing new and opportunistic ways, around whatever obstacle they would place in front of him. For example, at one remand home, he managed to covertly grab a bunch of keys as soon as he was brought into the reception there upon arrival, but soon realised that he wouldn't have chance to use them because he was being too closely supervised. Instead, Probin eventually opted to take them to the deputy of the home and admit to him that he'd considered escape, but had now changed his mind and was going to knuckle down and do his time. Relieved, the deputy gave Probin his empty coffee cup to take back to the staff kitchen, for the first time in his stay there, unsupervised. Once here, he noticed a barred window that was wide enough for him to squeeze through and was immediately away, being at large for several weeks on this occasion. See what I mean? Opportunistic. Eventually, he was sent to an approved school in Wales, the distance from here to London considered being too far for him to be able to abscond, but not a chance. 
After only a week, Probyn absconded from here and made his way to Swansea, where he stowed away on a train and made it back to Paddington Station. He was eventually recaptured and made two attempted escapes on the journey back to the school. Once returned here, he was placed into a room situated between two of the housemaster's rooms. Yet even from here, Probyn facilitated an escape, this time fleeing naked after using three knotted together blankets to lower himself to the outside. He made his way some eight miles from the school to Carmarthen Bay, where from here he made his way again to Swansea, jumped once again on a train, and was back in Paddington Station, and then home to Shoreditch, obviously having gained some clothing on the way. Becoming this kind of Houdini, Probin was even able to get out of police cells for a time, because up until the age of 14, he was wiry and lithe enough to be able to fit through the small hatches in the cell doors. He would bang and create a disturbance for so long that he was eventually ignored by the authorities, which would allow him to bang the closed hatch to make the outside catch jump outwards, whilst at the same time placing the flat of his hand against the hatch and pulling downwards. Now after a bit of trial and error, these actions would coincide, and once they had, he'd be out through the open hatch and into the hatch leading to the air shaft, and then onto the roof, and then away, a process that he did at least eight times from police stations including Old Street, Hackney, Victoria, and Rochester Row. Because he became so practised and polished at escaping from remand homes whilst awaiting return to the approved schools, the authorities took to have him probing remanded in prison, and at age 13, in 1945, he was first sent to Wormwood Scrubs for three months imprisonment, following which he was back in approved school. Soon after this, Probin absconded once again, this time whilst being let out for an exercise period, and it was during this time on the run that Probin committed his first crime of violence. For during his inevitable recapture that followed some weeks later, a plainclothes police officer was stabbed in an altercation with him, albeit non-fatally. It was this action that led to Probin being dubbed the Terror of Hoxton, the Hoxton Houdini, or the Dimpled Demon by the press, though the more common moniker and label he was destined to live with was Angel Face. The press sensationalising this 14-year-old angelic-looking tearaway who had stabbed a police officer. Now, in fact, Probin looked nothing like angelic, really. He had a face like a robber's dog, and that's not meant to be cruel. That's just me being apt. Following this, he was again remanded to the scrubs for a remand period of almost 12 weeks, spending time between the punishment cell, a bare cell with just a mattress in, before moving on to the psychiatric ward before he eventually arrived at Central Criminal Court, more commonly known as the Old Bailey, for his trial. Here, after spending time in the same holding cell underneath the court that the likes of celebrated British murderers such as Heath and Haig had recently been in, at the last moment Probin was advised by his barrister to plead guilty, and after doing so, received a four-year prison sentence for a charge of grievous bodily harm. Following this, he found himself back in the scrubs for a short time, before being carted off to Monster Mansion itself, Wakefield Prison up in Yorkshire, somewhere we shall visit again before this series is out. Here he spent the next 34 months with no entitlement to remission. But even before he was sent to Wakefield, Probin's mind was not on how he was going to do his time, but rather being put to use about how he could get out of there, not wanting to spend even a day longer in custody. 
Underneath his A-wing cell in the scrubs was a basement used by the engineering maintenance works, which Probin thought if he could break through to, he could use materials there to be over the wall and away. He noticed that his cell floor was made of a black tar-like substance, which he thought he would be able to camouflage the hole that he was intending to dig with the black wax that he used in his prison job of making mailbags, the wax being used to wax seal the threads. Over a period of time, he had made and disguised each night a hole in the floor using his spoon that was soon the length of his arm and the width of the spoon that he was using to dig with when he was suddenly, in the early hours of one morning, transferred to Wakefield Prison. Ghosted is the term that prisoners use to describe this. How gutted would you be there, Ray? Now we shall continue following a short word from the show sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what a year it was last one, eh, folks? It's been one to write off, hasn't it? And understandably, people are struggling. For some, it might just be the knock-on effects of the situation that the world is facing right now. But for others, there may be that more personal, specific thing. You may be worrying about your loved ones, how you can be there for them as best and as much as you can be. We've all got unique situations, haven't we? So whatever it is that's interfering with your happiness, this is where BetterHelp comes in. Now just to clarify, it's not self-help that's offered. What BetterHelp does is assesses your needs and matches you with your very own licensed professional therapist who has specialised in all manner of issues, ranging from relationship or family conflicts right through to depression and stress for professional counselling. BetterHelp is available for clients worldwide. It's much more affordable than any traditional offline counselling with even financial aid available if it's needed, and you can start communicating in less than 24 hours in a convenient, safe, and confidential online environment. You'll get thoughtful and timely responses from your selected counsellor that you can message anytime, plus you can even schedule weekly video or phone sessions with them, and all this without the uncomfortableness that goes with sitting around in a waiting room. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. Several days after arriving in Wakefield Prison then, Probin was sent to work in the tailor shop there which he claims in his autobiography that he hated and soon refused to work in, due to the constant unwanted sexual advances from other prisoners that he received there. This led to repeated trips to the punishment wing and solitary confinement for him, before he once again returned to the tailor shop, but this time stealing two cutting knives from the machine in there. Probin concealed these and covertly serrated the edges of them, making them into rudimentary saws, with which he began cutting the bars of his cell window. He claims that he was informed on for doing this, and received a lengthy spell in the punishment block for doing so. By this time, as you can probably imagine, Probin had gained a reputation as a troublesome prisoner, and was constantly in solitary, placed on a punishment diet, subject to all manner of ways in which the officers could make, according to the so-called rules, of course, life hell for him. Things like constantly ordering him to get a haircut, which when he did, they would say wasn't short enough and place him on report for disobeying an order. 
when he would outright refuse, because there is only so much haircut that you can have after all, and off topic, I had such a satisfying post-lockdown one the other day, because I was starting to look like that I should be out solving bloody mysteries with a dog. Back to the punishment block, probing would go. Because he had been, he discovered later, unlawfully treated by being placed on a punishment diet as a minor, he eventually created the first of many petitions that he would submit to the Home Office about the treatment he received at the hands of prison staff, although none of which were ever acted upon by authorities. He was seen by a board of visiting magistrates as a result of this one, however, but prison authorities denied ever having sentenced him to a punishment diet, and perhaps coincidentally, or perhaps he'd become such a pain in the arse that it was the easiest thing to do, in 1949, Probin was then certified and sent from Wakefield Prison to Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottinghamshire. Now privately, Probin claims in his book, a doctor there told him that even though he'd been certified as, and you've got to bear in mind the times here, what Probin describes in his book as being a moron under the Mental Deficiency Act 1913, he was actually no more mentally deficient than himself or any of the staff there. Probin had been certified because he was a nuisance and an embarrassment to the penal authorities. Now that's a horrific thing to do, isn't it? It's draconian and it reflects a time gone by where you have to seriously hope that changes have been made since, don't you? It's an awful thing to do to someone that. Probin's book contains several horror stories of some of the disturbing sights and cruelty that he saw there in Rampton upon his initial stay in E1, the reception ward before after some weeks being moved to E3, where he befriended another patient who had been sent there simply for being a nuisance, a reported escaper that he refers to in his book as Wilf. Almost immediately, the two began plotting an escape together. Now, several escape attempts had been made from Rampton before 1950, and hospital staff had in place procedures to combat escapes taking certain courses so the two decided to make a unique one to throw staff into confusion and to give themselves extra chance. As Probin describes it then, one day in December 1950, the two were outside on an exercise period when they suddenly broke off from the party and ran to the bottom wall of the yard where they here shinned up a drain pipe each and onto the roof of one of the wards, where they ran along here and made some 10 to 15 foot leap across to the lower level workshop roof. They then ran back along the length of this towards the female ward side of the institution, then down over a low wall and out onto open fields behind, pursued by just one officer, the escape having taken hospital staff totally by surprise. Eventually, the two men separated and Probin, who was by now unpursued, made his way to a storm drain where he lay underneath bracken and vegetation until darkness, where he then made his way across country until he reached a railway line, and beyond it the arterial road that would take him south. Traffic on the roads was fairly light that evening, aside from the occasional passing lorry, and coming to the brow of a steep hill, Probin hid himself behind a heap of gravel, and eventually pulled himself onto a slow-moving passing lorry, where he hid underneath the rear tarpaulin and which as luck would have it, took him, unknowingly of course, all the way down to London. He was at large for five months from this escape, during which he details in his book several close shaves that he had with the law and avoiding recapture by the skin of his teeth, 
before he was finally caught and returned to Rampton, where he was placed in the refractory ward. Here he recounts more draconian punishments, such as being made to lie in darkness in blankets for a period of two weeks, then made to polish a stone-floored corridor on his hands and knees using sand and water for 12 hours a day. Yet whilst he was here, Probin managed to get hold of a junior hacksaw and sawed through a bar on his cell window, before the tool was discovered missing and he was caught again, receiving another month's punishment of the aforementioned for his troubles. He was eventually moved from here to Rampton Sea Block, from where he attempted yet another escape, this time managing to scale the wall before being seen and chased across country. He was eventually caught in the corner of a nearby field, and claims in his book that he received a proper good shoeing for this, being beaten severely, even half drowned in a bath of cold water, before being thrown into the darkened punishment cell and left there for weeks. However, Probin's family now brought in independent psychologists and psychiatrists to make reports on him, where it was discovered that he had an above-average IQ of 120, was psychologically well-balanced, and was categorically not mentally deficient. Just as habeas corpus, the definition being a writ requiring an arrested person to be brought before a judge or court, especially to secure the person's release unless lawful grounds are shown for their detention, as this was about to be initiated on the strength of these independent reports, the authorities released Probin, who by that time had actually served six years, as opposed to the four he was sentenced to, due to the time that was added for his repeated escapes. Though he attempted lawful employment upon his release, finding work as a builder's labourer, Probin soon drifted back into a life of crime, and just five months after his release from Rampton, he was again inside for theft of a car, before receiving a three-year prison sentence during this incarceration for charges relating to shop-breaking. He served two years imprisonment of this in London's Wandsworth Prison, relatively trouble-free and without attempting an escape, before being released in 1954, where he set up home with a girlfriend and her child. He went through a series of driving jobs, working for a wholesale baker and a, sh- and a saw sharpening firm, before starting work by himself as a general dealer, he claims, a man with a van, basically. He says in his book, however, that his attempts to go straight were thwarted at every turn by the police, insinuating that coppers have a long memory and someone who stabbed one of their own some years before would never get an easy ride from any of them, and who lost him several jobs on account of constantly stopping and searching him, making him late due to pulling him over. Probin even claims that his van was mysteriously torched one evening, and police at first accused him of doing so in an attempted insurance scam, Then when he pointed out that his policy didn't cover him for fire damage, he was threatened with being summoned for obstruction unless he had the shell of the vehicle removed. By summer 1957, in what he claims was an embittered frame of mind at his treatment by the police then, Probin and an accomplice stole a van load of clothing from a Bournemouth wholesaler where they were stopped near the Hampshire town of Guildford by a police patrol at about 3 o'clock in the morning. With both men fleeing from the vehicle, Probin led police a merry chase across the Guildford area, where some 18 hours later he was recaptured whilst hiding in a storm drain. 
He was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment for this, being sent to serve it in Maidstone Prison, and whilst here he undertook a bricklaying course, which he made excellent progress in. However, by now having a family on the outside to support, as his sentence progressed, Probin became increasingly distracted by reports that they were struggling financially and the children were about to be taken into care, being a very real threat. With just four weeks left to go on his sentence, he once again absconded from prison, this time from an outdoor working party. After making his way to London and making contact with his family, Probin took to arming himself with a toy gun to evade recapture, which by brandishing, he was able to successfully do a month later. The following day, in response to the press descriptions portraying him as, I quote, a dangerous gunman, Probin wrote a letter to the Daily Mirror newspaper explaining the reasons for his escape, his sense of desperation, and pointing out the fact that the gun he'd used was in fact a toy, which by that point had been found where he'd abandoned it and handed in, but had not been reported in the press. He then agreed to a meeting with a Mirror reporter, hoping, he claims, to give his version and have the advantage of handing himself in, but the reporter turned out to be an undercover police officer and Probin was caught banged to rights again. For the second time, Probin faced a trial at the Old Bailey, where he pleaded guilty to resisting arrest with the use of an imitation firearm and was sentenced to, I quote, two and a half years to commence at the expiration of the sentence you are now serving. Now he again attempted to take habeas corpus proceedings, describing in his book how here he was arguing the toss that this sentence was unlawful, because at the time of sentencing he was not actually serving a sentence, the original having expired a week before, and so the two and a half years could not be legally executed, as it was dependent on him still being a serving prisoner as how it was worded. When I was researching the episode, it battered my head beyond belief writing that paragraph, I tell you. Basically, he couldn't be serving a consecutive sentence if he wasn't serving one to begin with at the time. Now, by all accounts, Probin did have some decent and weighty support for his claims, including the support of former Nelson and Cole MP and Labour politician Sidney Silverman, who was preparing to go to bat for him. But before the proposed legal action for this argument got underway, guess what he did? Course, Probin escaped from prison once again. He claims this time in order to fix a second domestic disaster. This time in Wandsworth Prison, Probin acquired and swallowed several small balls of carbolic soap, which when combined with strenuous exercise to make him sweat and a good bit of acting, gave him the appearance of an extremely sick man high temperature, flushed and appearing doubled up in pain. When an officer opened Probin's cell door after responding to him repeatedly ringing his bell, he was immediately conveyed to the prison hospital and when the medical officer examined him here, it was decided that Probin was suffering from acute appendicitis and was ordered to the former St. James Hospital in Balham for an emergency operation. He was escorted here in ambulance by two officers and once in a cubicle in the casualty department, with a few metres of distance between him and the supervising officers, Probin was up and away like a belt-fed wombat. From here he made his way to an acquaintance in East London, obtained a change of clothing, and was back away to sort out the financial mess that his family was in, which he did so by dealing in stolen property. 
Probin had an active period at large doing this, making a living dealing in stolen goods, when at the end of December 1959, he was again recaptured. Returned once again to Wandsworth Prison, and this time kept in solitary confinement until his trial, Probin received the relatively light sentence of 15 days solitary confinement and bread and water, plus 180 days loss of remission for escaping from custody. However, he was also charged with some eight other offences committed whilst he'd been at large, including shop breaking, handling stolen goods, and possession of an offensive weapon. Convicted of these, he was sentenced to a further five years' imprisonment, which he began with a spell in London's Pentonville Prison, the prison where Crippen, Heath, and Christie all met their end, and where, pop trivia quiz, past notable inmates of overtime included three famous Georges. George Best in 1984 for driving under the influence of alcohol and assault, Boy George in 2009 for the assault and false imprisonment of a male escort, and in 2010, George Michael for drug driving offences. Once in Pentonville, Probin, who was now watched like the bloody Elisa Lamb lift video, began further studying the law in an attempt to initiate legal proceedings against the authorities that he believed had unjustly treated him, before at the end of 1961, he was transferred to Dartmoor Prison in Princetown in the county of Devon, arriving there as prisoner number 236. Now by all accounts, Dartmoor Prison, today it's a closed Category C prison, it's a foreboding looking structure, it's high granite walls dominating the moorland on which it stands, but at the time we're talking about, the early 1960s, Large parts of it were in a severe state of disrepair. It had been opened at the beginning of the 19th century, at the time designed to incarcerate prisoners of war, but had been reopened as a civilian prison in 1851 and has run as such ever since, bar a three-year period from 1917 when it was converted into a home office work centre for certain conscientious objectors granted release from prison. Bit of triv, it also features in several of the Sherlock Holmes stories, including arguably the most famous one, The Hound of the Baskervilles, which is good, but it's not my favourite Holmes story, that happens to be Silver Blaze, if anybody's interested. Because large parts of Dartmoor were in disrepair at the time, parts of the old wall were falling down, large gaps were in the existing masonry of it, it wasn't as escape-proof as it was set out to be. However, the moor itself that it stood on was that vast and that eerie, filled with bogs and trenches and notorious for the thick Dartmoor fog that can just apparently creep in from nowhere at any time, that it deterred the majority from attempting to flee. Nevertheless, there were a few triers, and whenever an escape happened, the entire prison population would be locked up for anything up to two or three days solid, whilst the moor was searched for the escapee, and more often than not, the escapee would soon be brought back after fleeing, soaked and suffering from exposure, having walked into one of the roadblocks set up by the local police, or after spending ages walking around ostensibly in circles on the moor. Probin had been released from Dartmoor to hostile conditions by early 1964, and after getting married on the 1st of June of that year, was soon re-arrested on charges of shop-breaking, for which he was ultimately convicted and given a further five-year sentence, and was back in Dartmoor before he knew it. By the time he'd been there another seven months, Probin was working as a plasterer's labourer undertaking repairs to several of the officers' houses, an estate of quarters which ringed the prison, 
and the second time that the Hoxton Houdini had found himself there placed on an outside working party. He had also by this time, after studying the terrain and the surroundings, decided it would be a good idea to acquire for himself a magnetic compass, which he duly did, and by the time he decided to make an escape attempt once again, hid it in one of the officer's houses that he'd been working in. On the day of his escape, Probin loaded up his required plasterboards and equipment early so he wouldn't be in demand too soon and dropped them off, and then, carrying a forgotten bag of plaster for cover, made his way past the row of houses, and then dropping the plaster, sprinted over a gate onto fields which bordered the moor itself. From here he headed first in a southerly direction, avoiding both pursuing prison officers and civilian workers, until nightfall, when he found himself sinking into a bog that he'd just run into. Displaying remarkable presence of mind, Probin stood still and waited, knee-deep in this, for a passing car headlight that he could gather his directional bearings from, before he was out of there and continued southeasterly until he came upon the Avon Dam Reservoir, just north of Shipley Bridge, narrowly avoiding a party of soldiers who were out on an orienteering exercise. From here, Probin claims in his book that he hid during the hours of daylight in undergrowth or in remote barns or ruined stone cottages, determined to move only under cover of darkness, constantly on foot and moving in a northeasterly direction until he found himself on the northern fringes of Exeter, which is some considerable distance to have made on foot across such uninviting terrain. After detailing a few more close shaves with both police and civilian workers, Probin claims to have made it further across the country to Salisbury Plain, which is predominantly in Wiltshire, and from here, moving along a railway track, to the station of Porton, near where he spotted a lighted telephone kiosk. Taking a chance, by this time utterly exhausted, Probin made a reverse charge telephone call to an unnamed associate, and when connected, passed him the following message. My lorry has broken down, I've got myself covered with oil and I've got no money to get it repaired. Can you bring down some food and clothes when you come? I'll wait by the Porton Hotel next to the railway station here. Now whoever was on the other end of the phone, and in his book Probin doesn't say who it was of course, the code of honour amongst thieves probably meaning him not wanting to drop anybody in the shit to face charges of aiding and abetting an escaped prisoner, in print, Whoever was on the end of the phone would know in crim speak that this was Probin telling him in code where he was and to come and collect him sharpish, paranoid that the call may be being eavesdropped upon and conscious at any time that police may converge on his point. He details in his book waiting for what seemed like an eternity before he noticed from his vantage point underneath a nearby hedge a car with its side lights on moving very slowly through the village and stopping near the prearranged spot. Stealthily approaching the vehicle, conscious that this may have been police tipped off by the operator, a voice he knew suddenly called out, Wally! Safe, Probin was immediately bundled inside and covered with a blanket, and the car began its swift journey back to London. Once back in London, Probin and his family now spent a period, all of them on the run, moving from place to place before he details a return trip to London on the 15th of October 1964 to obtain a new car from an acquaintance, frequently changing vehicles to avoid detection and recapture. It was at this meeting that a violent clash with a group of fellow criminals in the presence of his wife 
and stemming from their opinion that Probin was responsible for the shooting of one of their own number occurred, leading to Probin shooting at one of them before being chased, outnumbered and beaten unconscious. He awoke to find himself in a police van, speeding him to Poplar Hospital, which Probin claims must have taken the longest route possible to arrive at, in order to give the several officers in the back enough time to give him the hiding of his life. He arrived at Poplar Hospital missing teeth, having a severely cut head, broken ribs, a broken right arm and left shoulder, ankles that he could barely stand on, bruised so much that he looked like a Ribena berry, and vomiting blood, where he spent the next five days recovering under constant police guard, before returning to Pentonville Prison to await punishment for his latest escape, as well as numerous other charges. Charged with shooting with intent to cause grievous bodily harm or to resist arrest, at a subsequent trial the jury found Probin guilty and he was sentenced to 12 years imprisonment, whilst his wife received 5 years for her part and he found himself back in Wormwood Scrubs, the very first prison in which he'd been incarcerated in almost 20 years before. Probin claims that his broken right arm had not set properly when he'd been sent here, despite his protestations, and it was more than eight months after the incident that it was finally operated on, requiring the placing of steel pins and rivets in it. Yet even whilst his arm was in bits and in plaster following this, Probin claims he attempted yet another escape from the scrubs, despite his reputation preceding him to place him on special watch, meaning he had to wear clothing with bright yellow patches on, and him being signed over from one warder to another wherever he went. But undaunted by this, Probin began once again considering escape, this time facilitating the use of another long-term prisoner to join him in his attempts. The two men managed to procure a rope and tackle which they stowed away underneath one of the baths in the prison bathhouse, and a friend of theirs offered to create a diversion for them at the appointed day and time. On the appointed day, Probin and his friend entered the bathhouse, which was constructed in an L-shape, and always had a prison officer sat outside by the open door, and got into adjoining cubicles close to the entrance door, while their friend, who was to be the diverter, went around the corner of the L-shape out of sight. Donning the spare set of ordinary clothing that his fellow escapee had worn underneath his own, Probin promptly combed his hair differently, padded out his cheeks using cotton wool, and placed on a pair of horn-rimmed spectacles, and then added a blue armband to his attire, symbolising that he was a prison trustee. He then gave a pre-arranged signal from his cubicle, upon which point his diverter friend emerged from his own cubicle, and promptly, dramatically, collapsed on the floor. The prison officer immediately left the door to see what the commotion was about, and once he was out of sight around the L, Probin and his friend were off, walking from the bathhouse, and through the grounds towards the end of D-Wing. However, by the time they reached the wall, despite several attempts, neither man was able to muster the strength required to throw the tackle over the wall to hold them whilst they climbed, and by this time, both men had been missed and were recaptured in their attempts. By this time also, Probin's appeal against his conviction for shooting with intent had been heard and dismissed, and having already served eight full years in custody over time, still had another ten facing him. He was then sent to the top security block of Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight in Hampshire, which was at the time a state-of-the-art security facility, 
It had CCTV, electronic gates, bulletproof partitions. Basically, he described it as a prison within a prison, and which had only opened five weeks prior to his arrival, containing just 18 cells. Here, Probin found himself alongside notorious prisoners of the time, such as Harry Roberts, the notorious killer of three policemen in the Braybrook Street Massacre in Shepherd's Bush in 1966, and John Straffan, whose killings of three children, including one whilst at large on an escape from Broadmoor, led to him being Britain's longest-serving prisoner, and it wasn't long before, guess what? Probin had begun to make preparations for an escape. Over the next 18 months, Probin claims to have obtained both an Ordnance Survey map of the Isle of Wight and an Admiralty map of the Solent, had facilitated some crude, small magnetic compasses, and obtained plastic bags that he and his fellow escapees intended to fill with air to aid buoyancy should they need to swim the Solent upon escape. But whilst waiting for the clocks to go back to make their escape, signalling the extra hour of darkness needed to afford them extra cover, the maps and items were found in his cell during a weekly search. A couple of days later, at 4am, Probin was ghosted once again to another prison, this time to the high security wing of Her Majesty's Prison Durham, in the county of the same name, in the north of England. And it was at Durham, Nick, where he was to meet the man who joined him in arguably his most celebrated escape. Like Probin, who was nine years older than him, John Roger McVicker was an East End lad, born in 1940 in East Ham, the son of a railway worker and the eldest of two children, having a younger sister, Janice, who was born in 1942. Now his family dynamic was a disturbed one, his father being a cold and morose man of Scottish origin, totally uninterested in his children, a character who was totally at odds with the warmth of his mother, whom McVicker worshipped, and both he and his sister were brought against the background of their parents' constant arguments and rows, and the occasional displays of domestic abuse brought on between the two by his father's heavy drinking, which had descended into full-blown alcoholism by the time McVicker started school in 1945. With no strong male role model in his life then, McVicker was to claim years later that the first ambition he ever harboured was to be the best fighter in the infant school that he attended, before this gave way in primary school to an obsession with sports and any physical activities that he believed carried prestige in the eyes of others, perhaps to make up for the non-existent admiration from his father. However, his competitive nature and strive for dominance over his companions also flourished with this, and the values that McVicker adopted from his early years of schooling were to be tough, that fighting was the best method of settling any dispute, and that courage and success in showing aggression provided the only true basis for his self-esteem. He was also left with a disbelief in, and a barely disguised resentment of, authority, feeling that it was never to be obeyed unless he wished, or the consequences of disobedience outweighed the point of disobeying it. By age seven, when he started primary school, McVicker had established himself through a series of fistfights as the best fighter in his year, and his competitive nature increased, be it on the football field, or the cricket pitch, or even in the boxing ring. Yet by no means unintelligent, from an early age he'd mastered chess and had read and enjoyed such books as Wuthering Heights and Little Caesar, with the love of reading and learning instilled in him from an early age by his mother, 
McVicker became of the opinion that working hard at school carried with it a very definite negative rating in the peer group stakes, and was reluctant to push himself to his full potential academic capacity, instead concentrating his efforts on maintaining his position as the school tough. However, McVicker passed the 11 plus and adopted to attend the Cooper's Company School, a grammar school in the Mile End Road, which he began attending at the beginning of the 1950s. And it was here that he at first spurred himself on to work harder academically, when his first term exam results placed him into the lower middle set of the year. By the end of that school year, he came out top of his class academically, and in the top 10% of the entire year. However, Following this, it began a slow decline in his academic performances, as he lost the sense of competition to spur him on, though he continued to improve sporting-wise by now adding rugby, cricket and boxing to the fields that he was a rising star in. By the time he was 15 years old, his schooling had deteriorated to the point where he became disruptive and subversive when he was in class, and he was to leave school the following year with no academic qualifications. Instead, McVicker began a life of juvenile delinquency, skipping school and generally getting up to devilment, hanging about in billiard halls, milk bars, chasing the opposite sex, smoking, and experimenting with substances such as benzodrine and marijuana. It was at this time that McVicker received his first criminal conviction for being in possession of an offensive weapon, a file that he had adopted carrying as part of the teddy boy uniform that he wore for the style of the time that he identified with, although he was conditionally discharged for the offence. But the seeds were sown for the life that he chose, and by age 16, he had decided that crime would pay, and had joined a group of eight or nine other young criminals with a similar outlook, who began raiding shops and warehouses, selling on the stolen goods at a markdown price. This enterprise earned them just enough to finance the status symbols of this chosen life, cash on the hip, money for clothes, parties to impress girls, even enough to buy between them a van, but of course brought with it the downside of the easy money that a life of crime must bring, because you constantly risk getting your collar felt for it, don't you? This happened first for McVicker in December 1956, when he and three other members of his firm were arrested for offences including shop-breaking, larceny and the theft of motor vehicles, and McVicker was subsequently sent to a remand home in Essex, considered too young for prison. He absconded from the home after only a few days, and was persuaded by his mother to give himself up, following which he was sent to prison on remand. By the time he appeared for sentence in February 1957, he was sentenced to borstal training, which for the first three months of his sentence took place in a separate wing from the main prison at Wormwood Scrubs, before he was transferred to Portland Borstal, which is today Your Majesty's Prison Portland in Dorset. Here, McVicker spent the next 20 months, only briefly punctuated by a few days home leave following the death of his father in 1959, and returning home following his release, began working for a time in the family tobacconist shop which his father had run. However, less than six months after his release, McVicker and an accomplice robbed a fence of a few hundred pounds worth of cash, and both were arrested as a result, leading to a second spell of borstal training for him, this time at a facility in the Midlands. He'd been there just a day when he and three others absconded from here, making their way back to London, where McVicker spent another three months at large. 
Now he claims in his book that whilst at large during this period, he undertook a one-man crime wave to achieve two means. Firstly, of course, to survive. You can't go and bloody sign on if you're a wanted escapee, can you? Secondly, it was to ensure that he had enough offences to his name if and when he was recaptured to ensure that he was relieved of his Borstal training sentence, despising it greatly. Now, by all accounts, these were terrible places, as we're saying before. The regimen in these institutions was designed to be, I quote, educational rather than punitive, and to offer educational opportunity, regular work, and discipline to young offenders. But they were also highly regulated places with a firm focus on routine, discipline, and authority. I stress discipline and authority during the early years, which one social commentator described as, more often than not, they were breeding grounds for bullies and psychopaths. Now, I mentioned the same thing earlier, didn't I? If you've seen the film Scum, then you'll have a picture of what I'm talking about here. And if you haven't seen it, then it's a film that's well worth a look at, even if it's just to see a youthful Ray Winston having a face that isn't bloody redder than a London bus. And don't forget your tool. So, when he was finally rearrested, McVicker got his desire, as strange as it sounds, a 15-month prison sentence. Yet this backfired upon him, for a few months later, he was told that once his prison sentence was complete, he was to be returned to Borstal, being sent to the punishment Borstal in Reading, in late 1960, when his prison sentence was up. He describes in his book as this being, I quote, the hardest prison I've ever been in and he details how upon arrival in the reception there, inmates received a belt in and the threat of a fucking good hiding if you step out of line. McVicker spent a seven-month stretch here before being released on licence, from which he went to stay with his mother and sister in the new home in Ilford. But six months after this, McVicker was once again arrested, this time following a brawl in a restaurant where a man ended up stabbed, albeit with his own weapon during a struggle, and was sentenced to three years imprisonment for riotous assembly and assault. He was to serve two and a half years of this sentence in Wandsworth Prison, before being released in February 1964. Two weeks later, he and some accomplices were almost caught during a wages snatch at a London garage, but McVicker escaped through a window. He continued in this vein for the next six months, committing wages snatches and shop-breaking right through the summer of 1964, by which time he'd also begun a relationship with a woman from the local area, Sheila, who became pregnant with his child. Then in August 1964, he was arrested following a brawl outside his house, which happened to have occurred just after he'd taken part in a £2,000 wages snatch from a window cleaning firm, still having the cosh, the overalls, and even the money on him. Remanded in Brixton Prison to await trial charged with the robbery this evidence related to, as well as offences related to the aforementioned garage robbery, McVicker was now looking realistically at the prospect of a sentence of anywhere between 7 and 14 years imprisonment. In the end, he received an 8-year sentence, beginning this back in Wandsworth Prison, but soon moving down to Parkhurst, where he entered a well of despair for the first time that he claimed in his life. He felt lonely, isolated from his mother, who by that time had been crippled with worry about him, his sister Janice, who he was close to, and whose relationship with him had been somewhat fractured 
due to him only being an intermittent presence in her life whilst out of prison. His girlfriend Sheila was heavily pregnant with his son, Russell, whose birth he would miss and whose life he would not be around to be a part of for at least the first few years of it. And though he had, by age 25, got what he himself admits that he craved, in the eyes of other prisoners, he was a man of respect, someone with a reputation. Machismo is a word that McVicker uses often in his autobiography. It doesn't really sound worth the swap there, does it? With this beginning to dawn on him, and little cause to do anything else, McVicker threw himself further into the one thing he'd always relied upon, had focused upon, and excelled at fitness and sport. In the confines of the prison yard, he would do whatever was available to him, football, basketball, and with an increased focus on weightlifting and cardio, until by May 1966, he had acquired the nickname of the Muscle Man due to his peak physical condition and level of fitness. I mean, this guy looked like he'd been drawn by all accounts, and subsequent pictures of him, he looks hard. You'd quickly buy him a replacement if he knocked his pint over, is all I'd say. It was at about the same time as this that McVicker found an opportunity to escape, when a coachload of prisoner witnesses who had appeared to give evidence in court proceedings at Winchester Assizes broke and ran from a bus that had been escorting them back to Parkhurst Prison. Making his way from this back to London, back to Sheila, and by now Russell also, McVicker also lapsed back into thieving, linking up with acquaintances from the criminal underworld and committing armed robberies. It was during one of these robberies, an abortive attempt, that he was rearrested, although he resisted this arrest violently, including at first firing on a pursuing police car beforehand. By the time he appeared for trial at the Old Bailey in February 1967, he was found guilty on charges of robbery attempted robbery, conspiring to rob, firing with intent to resist arrest, and assaulting the police, leading to sentences totaling 15 years imprisonment that were to run consecutively to the eight years he was already serving. 23 years, effectively a life sentence that isn't it, with presiding trial judge Mr Justice Hinchcliffe telling him, society has earned a well-deserved rest from your activities. Sent straight from the Old Bailey following his sentencing to the high-security wing of Chelmsford Prison in Essex, McVicker was once again involved in an escape attempt, when on Friday the 1st of September 1967, a group of prisoners in the high-security wing rushed four prison officers as they were preparing to oversee them having their evening meal and taking their keys. After locking the officers in empty cells, McVicker and eight other prisoners fled the building, but unable to make it over the wall, which was by this time surrounded by police and dog handlers, instead climbed onto the roof of A-Wing, where they spent the next few hours pelting police and prison officers with stones and slates, and receiving a soaking from a fire hose in return, before realising the futility of them sitting up there, and came down peacefully. Alongside the others involved in this attempt, which the prison governor, W.I. Davis, described to the press the following day as Obviously pre-planned, amateurish, but determined, McVicker received punishment of a period of several months solitary confinement for, and midway through which, with at least another month of this punishment to serve, in November 1967, he was ghosted up to the security wing of Her Majesty's Prison Durham, 
which was at the time considered escape-proof, and which accommodated some of Britain's most notorious criminals. Moore's murderer Ian Brady was in there, triple killer David Burgess, who we met last series on the show in the Monsters of Berkshire, the Beast of Beenham episodes, he was there. Feared South London gang leaders Charlie and Eddie Richardson were there, who you never know, well, bollocks, of course you know, we'll meet in a future episode of the show. There were all sorts in there at the time, including one Walter Angel Face Probin. And Durham was somewhere that neither Angel Face nor the Muscle Man intended to stay for long, as you can imagine. And which we shall find out about in the second part of this tale, because that's a very neat place to leave it for now. It just works out lovely. It has been a tale, this one, that I've wanted to cover ever since I began doing the show some years ago, and I've considered it at some point for each of the past five series that I've done, but it's never quite made it beforehand. Something else has always pipped it. But its time is now, and it's a tale that I've always found fascinating, which I hope that you guys have also so far. Because there's so much to it, it of course warranted a double episode to try and do it justice. Therefore, we'll do our usual wrap-up at the end of next episode. There's no months of maniac here or anything with this, and which I look forward to you joining me for. Until then, all that remains for me to say is that I thank you all kindly for joining me here today, and that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you all very soon. Take care, folks, and goodbye for now.